You are listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our friends. Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness. And we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. And this is Reverend Anna Galladay. And we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for all of us to get our hands dirty. Pastor. Dr. Robin, good afternoon. Here we are again. We're back in our we're back in our virtual meeting. We are back in our virtual meeting. That episode was so fun being IRL and Yeah, oh. I, I like doing it in person. I do too. I do too. It's um it's bittersweet to have to come back to this way of yeah. of gathering and talking to you, but it's okay. It's it's what we were used to. We just got a taste of the good life and now we want more of it. As always, we want more. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Yeah, so so we're back uh, being tethered to our computer screens and our microphones. And it's it's already almost the end of September. How did that happen? I, I really have no idea. I, I say, I've said this a few times, but my mom used to warn me when I was a little kid and I would complain about, oh my gosh, it takes so long for Christmas to come. And she would say, you just wait. When you get to be my age, time goes so fast and you have no idea where it's gone. Yeah. And I, I it, like it's getting, it's getting faster and faster. I, I, I don't understand it. I feel like with my age, the older I get, the more time should slow down in the same at the same pace that my body is. Yes. <laughs> yes. And that doesn't seem to be the case. Do you know what you're going to get me for Christmas? I already have one of your Christmas presents purchased. Oh, wow. Uh, but I haven't thought about the other pieces. Oh. Well, that's exciting. <laughs> I can't wait. You love gifts so much. I've I never do. met anybody that loves gifts as much as you. It makes me so happy. I love gifts. I, You gave me a record for my birthday. And, you know, because I don't have a good spot for records, they're all just kind of sitting in front of the record player. And I just like it so much. And records are so old-fashioned. And I think yeah. it's, like, directly my pace. And so... I, I get giddy when I see the records and yeah, they are your pace. Now, I mean, it's super hip to have a turntable and, you know, yeah. listen to things on vinyl, but it's also, you know, what grandpas do, which, right. you know, as, as the grandpa of the team, yeah. it fits very well with your, yeah. your uh, modality. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we've got a, 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 I mean, today's a brand new episode and, yes. and we're back in our sort of usual um, medium. Yes. And what are we talking about today? 
I am curious about the history of, or the future of Sunday morning worship. And I, and I, and that is a very big topic. And I don't think that there will be uh, a, a ton of, that we cover in regards to it. But I think the pandemic has exposed things about the capital C church. It has exposed things about pastoral ministry. It has exposed things about our church buildings. Um, but more than anything, I think it's exposed things about those people who once felt compelled to go to a space on as a, as a ritual based practice on right. a weekly basis. And I'm curious uh, if we think that the pandemic has shown us that we may not meet, we may not need Sunday mornings anymore. Hmm. I, you know, I, I don't, I mean, when I regularly go to church, it's because I'm preaching in churches. Right. And, and I don't understand the appeal to Sunday morning, but I know that for a lot of people, it is an ingrained practice that they cannot live without. For me, when I think about community or sacred space or ritual, it happens for me at the dinner table. Yeah, and I think that I think that we have been lucky in this time in history that we have a lot of different ways that community and ritual can be built. I mean, we, mm -hmm. you know, we have, we have your favorite of, you know, cooking and eating together. I find, I find a, a ritual-esque kind of community when I am in front of a concert stage or when I'm, ex you know, experiencing the joy of the arts alongside right. other people. Right. Um, but I, I mean, I am one of those people who went to church every Sunday, whether they wanted to or not. And it became very ingrained in me that this, this was a, this was something that I did. And as I got older, it became a ritual and a practice that I actually looked forward to. That mm. I actually really, um, it it was a it was a reset in a way for my week. It it kind of grounded and lifted me in in opposite ways. But I think that as we have watched what's happened with online worship and people are watching their church services at any time during the week. Yeah. They got in the habit of being able to not have to join live, which, you know, is is I mean, we've ha we've had we've had streaming worship for years now. Yeah. But for a lot of people or for and for a lot of churches, their their online worship space was a very small minuscule part of the community that they had gathered. Right. They were, you know, they were, they streamed their worship for 
the exception, not the rule. And that isn't the case anymore. We are watching worship happen and experiencing worship in all kinds of ways. And we're doing it on our own time. Mm-hmm. And I think that I, I'm I'm curious both around how how this how the the departure of this ritualistic attendance will change community. And I'm curious about what it's going to do to church communities from a, you know, from a long-term standpoint. I mean, so many of them are in hospice care right now. Mm -hmm. They're, you know, they are, they think that they have, um, many years remaining to change the trajectory of the church. And yet they are sitting on 30 members in a massive co- a ma- a co- congregation or a sanctuary that holds 400 people. And all of those members are, are aging and they are still optimistic about their future when they maybe should be optimistic about what it looks like to, um, go gracefully from the place that they that they find themselves. Yeah, you know, and the the thing that I think about always, and and maybe it's the thing that compelled me to become a theologian and ethicist is that church is not tied up in Sunday morning. I remember decades ago being introduced in college. Uh, to liberation theology and learning that throughout Latin America, there were these things called base ecclesial communities. And it was primarily, and this was a Catholic sort of uh, ministry that emerged. And it was primarily women who were preparing the meals, uh, feeding the poor, uh, giving clothes out, you know, caring for basic needs. And and I thought to myself, wow, if that is what church is, a hyper-local ministry, I mean, I don't know any other word, but or right. endeavor maybe, or practice or praxis, then why are we so concerned with Sunday morning? I, I remember living in Chicago, listening to – WBEZ, which is the local NPR channel, I was listening to Tavis Smiley and Tavis saying that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. And I thought to myself, why are people so invested in that kind of ritual when you read in third world countries, there are rituals of coming together and providing basic needs that feel to me much more sacred, if I can use that term, than going in, a, in a, the halls of a cathedral that maybe 20 or 30 people are in. Right. I, you asked the question, you know, why, why do we feel so compelled to, to have Sunday morning? Um, why, why is that a thing? Why are we, 
um, still kind of in that circle of of expectation around what church looks like. I I read a really great article in Sojourners um, earlier this month that kind of talked about the future of church. It was written by um, Christina Cologne. And one of the things that she does in this article is that she interviews a pastor from Connecticut who says some pretty um, bold things about where the church was and where the church is heading. And one of the things that this pastor, his name is um, uh, Jonathan Chapman, said is that what the pandemic revealed is that there is a shadow side of idolatry that happens within our leadership communities in the churches. And the shadow side revealed that much of what happened at church on Sunday morning was a level of doing just for the sake of doing. Yeah. Of achieving just for the sake of the accolade of preparing and delivering just to knock it out and make it happen. And he challenges pastors to ask themselves really harsh questions now that things are starting to open back up again. Questions like, why is your church still open? Period. And what is the ministry that you're really doing? Yeah. Um, I mean, he has a perspective that there's this administrative and ministerial hubris that comes with the running of a church and the accolades that then return um, in exchange for the production that's put on on Sunday morning, whether it is with lights and sound machines and guitars and drums, or whether it's with an organ and hymnals and a pastor and no air conditioning. Mm -hmm. Um, And what that makes me curious about is who, who, if, if that, if that is where we were and we, we didn't see it and the pandemic has exposed it to us, then who were we worshiping all along? Well, I, I mean, I would even, I would even say, even the language, how we talk about church, even this language of worshiping, th- that is a new in- new invention that I think is accelerated by um, by some of the theology of enlightenment. Jesus never wanted to be worshipped, right? Um, we have we have created or manufactured rituals that are actually idolatrous. Right. And if we are not incarnating practices that bring healing, which I would I would say lots of churches are not, then then I I think they should shut their doors. I mean right. so many churches are are just going through the motions and remaining open 
because it's what they've always done, because that's what they think community is. And yet there are so many people who are lost, and I don't I don't mean to use evangelical language, but they don't have community. They don't have belonging. There is a lostness among them that they think just going to a building, listening to a sermon or a homily will satisfy them when the sermon or the teaching is actually not compelling people to do anything in the world. So I go back to this example that I read years ago around the base ecclesial communities who were actually doing the work of the world, doing what I would say is activist theology, getting their hands dirty with people, having relationships with the poor, the disenfranchised. And that to me is what church should be. Not a performance, though I do love good music. Um, our church is providing the kind of teaching that compels people to get their hands dirty. If you're just preaching your sermons so that you can feel better about having preached a sermon, I, I might say you might be contributing to the idolatry that, that is bad theology. Right. I think it's also important that we ask a question around what church really is supposed to be doing, both for those who are a part of the community and for those that Christ called this community that arose out of his life to do. I mean, what does it really mean to set the captives free? What does it really mean to bless those that are poor in spirit, to bless those that mourn, to bless those who are hungry, to be merciful, to be peacekeepers, to eliminate persecution? What does it look like for the church to be engaged in the issue of mass incarceration? There are so few churches that are. Um, what does the good news tell us about, you know, rent and, and housing instability and right. commu community instability and people who are losing their health care and are not able to pay for those bills or have simple accolade or have the simple rights to be whole humans as it relates to the care that their bodies and their brains and their, their hearts need. Um, I mean, how are we going to show up in the world? And the church for so long has looked at those kinds of questions as offshoots of the community that existed within the walls of their building. It was a mission committee. It was a, you know, committee on homelessness. There was a committee on, you know, uh, the food pantry to feed those that couldn't afford groceries. I mean, all of this very rote and inline models of charity that in no way illustrate 
what I believe Jesus was actually calling us to to do, which is what you and I talk about every single week about getting our hands dirty in the work and yeah. what it really means to be in the streets or be in the middle of a conversation that matters. And I think that this pandemic has given us a vision toward what the Beatitudes speak to and who we are to bless in a way that we may not have ever had the opportunity to see before. And I think it's a shame that a lot of churches aren't taking advantage of that, the possibility for a new creation, the possibility for a new iteration of what church is or could be. Um, So many of them are just trying to get back to the way it used to be, which puts them back in hospice care. Yep. So many churches, and I, I have spent a long time thinking about um, I mean, I think hubris is a great term for this, but the hubris of the institutional church and the ways in which the institutional church has accelerated supremacy culture is complicit in harm. And so many of these churches don't pay attention to some of the language in the New Testament, particularly the term oklos, which is a Greek term that refers to the crowd or the multitude or the common people. And when I think about, I mean, I'm trained as a liberationist, and so I'm, I'm, I think through that lens, liberationist philosophy is interested in eradicating I mean, it's, there is a class analysis, so it, there is a sort of Marxist bent to this analysis, but it is particularly interested in eradicating poverty um, from the crowd, from the common people. And, and, and we have so many churches who have hoarded social capital that don't do anything with the aklas, with the crowd. And and what is the image that we see in the New Testament and in other pieces of literature of teachers going, moving into the crowd, moving into the multitude, moving into the common spaces? Jesus was so close to the crowd that he could feel his power escape him when a bleeding woman touched the hem, just the hem of his dress. Yes, Jesus wore a dress. And I think about this and I think we have no clue how to be church right now. We, we are so concerned with making sure that we're putting everything online, that it's pristine, that, like you said, we have the sound machines going, we've got the guitars blazing. But are we teaching in a way that compels people for action in the world? Because when I when I read when I read the Bible, I read I read an imperative for community, even in the Hebrew scriptures. I read an imperative for community, for connection. 
and for creating conditions for a sacred canopy so that we can be in right relationship with each other. Which means that we go to the crowd. We go to the aklas. But I don't see I don't see our local churches or our cathedrals doing that. Yeah, I mean there is there's such a scarcity mindset that that the church is up against. And we we have talked about this scarcity mindset a number of times here on this podcast and and have really um, challenged all of us to seek to be in a mindset of abundance, not in this mindset of scarcity. But there's this there's there's so much fear attached to the institution that churches can't get out of their own way to imagine what's different, right. what could be different and imagine what could be possible because they are so, I mean, they, they just are, they're anchored to these things, yeah. this, this polity, th- these buildings, um, their, their budgets with the salaries that are attached to them. They're anchored to these things that really get in the way of moving an imagination around theological liberation forward in the, yeah. in the places that, that they sit. I mean, buildings are, church buildings is something that, you know, as, as you know, I, like I'm doing a lot of work around what it is that we need to be doing with our church buildings and how these empty and open one day a week buildings need yeah. to actually be transforming the communities in which they sit versus being albatrosses in in areas where where they are but you know these churches have these massive budgets just to upkeep a building and they think that that's the thing that they have to hang on to they think right. that that's the thing that's going to keep them solvent and it's going to keep them with, with some kind of status in their neighborhoods when in actuality, the people that live around them and the people that are within the, the voice of the people within that congregation could give two shits what the building looks like or what the building has to offer if they are not welcomed into it, or if the people that are coveting and holding on to these assets aren't finding ways to actually be in conversation and in yeah. deep relationship with these these other humans that are that are around them, and I, it's just this scarcity mindset and this fear based theological practice that so many churches and and I and I would say not just, you know, kind of mainline churches. I mean, I, I think that there are probably synagogues that are up against similar um, challenges um, and, and other, other buildings of faith that, that are having similar kind of struggles within mm-hmm. their, within their walls about what it is that they're supposed to be doing yeah. um, with their asset and with their, their energy. Um, I, I don't know how we change this scarcity mentality because I think that we have had so many opportunities for churches to figure out how they can do it right and how they can get out of their own ways. And, and they still are continuing to sink back into what they know and what feels comfortable 
even though these last 18 months have done everything to give them the possibility for a clean slate mm-hmm. and the possibility for what what could be next for them. I I think churches are more interested in their building than in the relationships they could foster. I mean, absolutely. You make a good point about how churches are not investing in their neighborhoods. And I think it's a direct reflection of their they are more self-interested in their building and in w- what programs they can offer than developing relationships with the churches, right? Because that requires having a praxis to your theology. Right. And I think the thing that is missing in so many churches is praxis. Right. I mean, we, we aren't, we aren't bringing leaders out of seminaries that understand this. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we, I mean, even, even today we aren't bringing leaders out of seminary. We, we didn't, we haven't brought them out for the last 50 years. And, and I would challenge that we're not bringing them out today right. to think about this in, in ways that are critical. I mean, even the most, um, innovative, and I use that t- word with at, with you know quotations around it. The most innovative church planters in two thousand in twenty twenty one are still looking for a facility in which to plant their church mm-hmm. first. Yeah, they are they are looking for a place to be before they are looking for a community with which to grow. Yeah. And there's a backwardness backwardsness to that. Jesus didn't care about the place. Jesus was transient. Jesus was walking and and moving and engaging and 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 setting up shop from a mountainside and setting up shop from the side of the lake and setting up shop in the homes of of the tax collectors and and setting up shop in the houses of the women who who were were following him there was nothing about place that there's nothing about facility that that bothered or even intrigued Jesus other than for him to be critical about what was happening within the temples mm-hmm. and what was happening within these these places that were supposed to be religious institutions in his days and how backwards they were in in understanding their role in the community even then. Jesus was critical of that and we have replicated that thing that Jesus was critical of and we have done it in Jesus's name. So speaking of uh, buildings and facilities. You, you used to be on staff at a church, and I'm just curious because I, I have been told that people spend more money of from their church budget on building maintenance than anything else. Is that true? Uh, it depends on the it depends on the facility. Um, there are it, it is definitely a massive line item 
on the budget for every church. I mean, this is why salaries, salaries and facilities are the two things that eat up the majority of church budgets. I mean, this is why churches can't invest in their neighborhood. Correct. Correct. Because there isn't money left over. Right. Um, and, you know, the older a church is, right. or the more historic a church is, or if a church has been given historical um, recognition within its town, it, I mean, that that is, in my, from my opinion, the curse of death, because it yeah. requires things of the membership of that church to upkeep because of this historical designation. But yes, it is, it is, I, I would, I, I long for a day when I can look at, well, I long for a day when church don't, churches don't need budgets in the first place. Um, because capitalism is, you know, fucking all of us, including yeah. churches. But I long for a day before that happens. I long for a day when I can look at the majority of church budgets and see that their outreach line items and the way that they are engaged in liberation and engaged in anti-racist work and engaged in the work of their communities is a bigger line item than anything else in that budget. I mean, those are the days that I long for. Well, I mean, let me just ask you a question. Do you think churches are interested in liberation? I don't think that churches understand what liberation is and what liberation actually means in their context. I think there are congregations that are doing good and important work in their neighborhoods, in their communities. There are, there are churches and, and congregations that are walking the walk and talking the talk in more ways than they're not. Yeah. But I also think that we have, we have set the mainline church up with such a Eurocentric view of culture and community and, and religiosity that that Eurocentric view is shielded and, and shaded by a, a white supremacist model. Mm. And, they, and, and, and so churches may think that they are engaged or seeking to be engaged in liberative works, but I would challenge that they don't actually know what that means because they are so rooted in a supremacist model of being simply because of the way they were established, because of the denominations they are a part of, mm -hmm. because of the, the, the systems that are holding them up, that they don't, they don't have a perspective on that. So this, this inherited and internalized perspective actually is a barrier to liberation. I mean, I would say so. I would say that's the case in many of our institutions, not just the church, but yes. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. And so I think that takes us back to, you know, this, this initial question that we asked, which is, you know, has the pandemic shown us that we don't need Sunday morning anymore, mm-hmm. that we don't need the gathering of Sunday morning worship anymore? Um, and I'm curious now that we've kind of spent 30 minutes uh, kind of wading in those waters, what do you think? What What would you say is the answer um, and the reasoning behind the answer to that question. I think that, I mean, it's still probably not safe to be gathering in large groups. So how do you create a gathering that is safe, that can live out Christian principles or Jesus principles or an ethics of action. I mean, I immediately go back to Sunday potlucks. Why, why can't we just start eating together and be in conversation? I mean, mean, I'm here for that. I mean, we see so many examples of people gathering and eating in the Bible. Why aren't we modeling that? Why are we, why are we so concerned with the ways in which practices have been institutionalized that actually disembody ethics and force us to live life from the shoulders up? Why, why can't we invest in a practice and a relationality that speaks to thriving, that speaks to flourishing, that speaks to what we always say, getting our hands dirty. I mean, eating together is one of the primary ways of connection. And I just feel curious why more people aren't interested in that. And it doesn't have to be large scale. You can create pods, right? I mean, lots of churches have care groups or small groups. So how do you how do you do that on a small scale but multiply it so that there is a multiplicity of gatherings happening um i mean that's what i fall back to and and actually my preference i would i would much rather have a ritual of eating together than going to a church i mean i am only a regular church attender when i'm asked to be there because I don't see, I don't see the purpose in in going there and just listening. I mean, it goes to my critique around the ways in which we have configured pedagogical structures and passive learning systems. I mean, all of that has to has to come down because what we desperately need in the world is praxis and. I mean, we talk a lot about that on the podcast and in our collaborative project. You know, what we desperately need are not praying with our mouths or with our hands with a bowed head, but we need to be praying with our feet and with our hands in the world with the Oculus. Yeah, I mean, I think that... I, I appreciate that you push the, 
that you push the answer far past um, where many, I think, would be comfortable starting. Because that's, that is where we need to end up. That is where we need to be. Um, I remain curious around what small steps or medium-sized steps congregations or leaders could take to really start to help their people understand what is important in the work and what isn't. Yeah. Um, and so when I think about the question of needing Sunday morning anymore, um, my first question is, why does it have to be Sunday? I mean, mm-hmm. it was it was Sunday morning because that was the time that farmers could get away from their fields right. to come and worship. There was nothing special or sacred about 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. It was a convenience factor right. <laughs> for, for the world um, when, you know, when we were setting up um, our systems and our structures, you know, 400 years ago. And then my question is, if it's not Sunday, when is it? And what does that, what is that time spent doing? Mm-hmm. So if you if you crave congregational living, if you crave the capacity to be in even a, a limited size group because of current COVID restrictions, what are you spending that time doing? Are you spending that time in a same old, same old model of church where idolatry of uh, a Christ, idolatry of your pastor, idolatry of your worship leader, and the music that they are capable of curating um, is foremost on your mind? Mm-hmm. Or are you spending time in congregational settings understanding what Jesus's real directives were around liberation and around getting your hands dirty in the work? Yeah. And what kind of community and congregational development could you establish if you were to shift your thinking around something that simple? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so maybe you gather on Saturday mornings at 8 a.m. and you are doing work in your neighborhood. You are doing work outside in the community. Maybe you are gathering in ways that allow for the kind of community that you speak about Robin this this you know eating small this small group intimate gathering around a table community um, I I am maybe maybe it's the the realist in me or maybe it's just the fact that I'm so embedded in this culture that I can't like I can't get over myself when I when I think about it but I do think that there are ways in which we have to give congregational, congregations a methodology by which to start having yeah. this this move this shift and and I would like to I mean I want to challenge them I want to challenge the pastors that that listen to this podcast I want to challenge the the faith leaders that are involved in a congregational setting um, what does it really look like for you to to do this work and to rid yourself of the things that pre-pandemic were not good for you and were not beneficial to your neighbors. 
and to the class, what does it what does it do to rethink that in this very moment where the rethinking is possible because you have a you have a clean slate yeah. with which to reimagine which you know apparently there are a lot of pastors who listen to this podcast i'm here for it so we're talking directly to you today mhm indeed it's a it's a big conversation, and and I think that we we don't spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about the methodology or the metrics around the institutional mainline church. I mean, that's yeah. not really where we spend you know a lot of our time. But this conversation is one that really I think is important to be had now mm-hmm. because we are quickly arriving on a time where. You, you as leaders, as pastors, as leaders, as church planners, um, are going to have to be able to say to yourself, did I take advantage of the time I was given to, to rethink this yeah. and, to, and to shift my community in a way that was generative? Or did I allow myself to... Um, sink back into the old ways that are continuing to do harm and continuing to keep my church in a place where hospice care, if it isn't already a part of your your personality, uh, could be on your horizon faster than, than you expect. Well, that's the rub, right? Do we rely on the past and the success of the past or the failure of the past or have the courage to lean into the future, which we don't know what that looks like. Right. Yeah. It's not, it's not safe. The future isn't safe and it isn't without fear. It's scary because it is unknown. There Mm -hmm. is nothing tangible about it to move towards. And yet we have had hundreds of years of doing what we've been doing and not getting it right. Right. And so what do we have what do we have to lose? Right. What do we have to lose? What do we have to lose? Yeah. So Well, Dr. Robin, thanks for this conversation. Yeah, this indulging is good. me in this in this uh, this question. Friends, don't forget that we are available online. Please do follow us at Activist Theology and please please get our app Get our app and engage with us in community and in conversation. You can download the app at atporch.com. That's A for activist, T for theology, porch.com. This is the front porch that we are curating, the the porch where we want to have conversations with yep. you and with one another. And um, don't forget that if you are capable and willing and able to help us fund this little project that we have, little project that's been going on for now a year and a half, um, or a year and nine months. We should have an we, anniversary party. <laughs> we should. We should. We're close to it. Um, you know, we, we, uh, we don't spend a lot of this podcast asking you to help monetarily fund this endeavor, but we will remind you that Robin and I 
fund this endeavor ourselves. Yep. And so if you are able, please do go to activisttheology.com and click on give. Um, there's a place where you can designate a small monthly gift just to the podcast, just to help us with cover our editing costs and um, the things that arrive, our hosting costs for broadcasting the podcast into the world. Um, we would covet your support and we are grateful for it. And if you have any questions about that or want some more information, please reach out to us. Do you want to tell folks where we're going to be next month? And because we're going to be together next month. We are. Which we is, are, it's almost October. I know, it's crazy. So Dr. Robin and I are going to be heading to Texas. Um, we are going to be joining our um, friend, Doug Paget, who was the very first interview on the Activist Theology podcast. Um, we are going to be joining their team with um, Vote Com. So Vote Common Good is uh, Doug's organization. And they are in the process right now of doing a project called We the People, where they are riding on their bicycles the length of the border um, to Mexico. And we are going to be meeting up with Doug and his team of humans in McAllen. Uh, this will be the final place that they arrive and stay before they kind of head on to try to finish their, their border ride. We're going to be joining them in McAllen, Texas on October 15th through the 17th. And we're going to be crossing the border. We'll be crossing the border and we are going to do an episode of the Activist Theology podcast there live so that everyone can get a taste of what we're seeing and what we're experiencing and we'll engage with some of the with some of the other conversation partners that are a part of the We the People bike ride and help, helping us all to understand why it's important that we understand what the borderlands between the U.S. and Mexico are about and why it's important that we pay better attention to them. Yes. I'm excited about that trip. I am too. It's going to be fun. Friends, thanks for joining us this week. We will see you again next week. And until then, Dr. Robin. It's our time to get free. We want to thank you for listening this week. We encourage you to share this podcast with your community. If you enjoy us and our work in the world, please give us five stars on your podcast platform. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.com and click on podcast. We can only do this work with the help of you, our listeners. You have no idea how much even a small monthly or one-time gift means to this work. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by Delta Ray. Our sound editor is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. I get my hands dirty. I show up so early. They show me no mercy. So I just keep working. Maybe God could save me. Oh, my boss might pay me. You are listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our friends.